Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. It's good to be back with you all after a few weeks hiatus. We took a couple of weeks off for the Christmas New Year break and then I was at CES last week and it simply wasn't feasible to record during what was a very busy week for me. So uh, this week I was also traveling. I was at the Detroit Auto Show earlier this week, so we're recording a little later in the week. But hopefully from this week onwards, for uh, at least until the summer, we should be on a, uh, back on our every Every week schedule that we have, usually uh, we record on Wednesday afternoons and then the episode goes up Wednesday night, Thursday morning. So hopefully we should be back to that. So happy new year to all our listeners and uh, it's good to be back with you. Uh, we've got a sort of CES focused episode today. So we will do a bit of a news roundup at the beginning. Our main topic will be themes from CES last week. And then our third segment will be a discussion of the 10th anniversary of the iPhone uh, the original uh, launch of the iPhone announcement was in January 10 years ago uh, during CES. Uh, and so uh, we sort of commemorated the 10th anniversary of that uh, this past week as well. Uh, so we'll have a little discussion about that event and uh, how the world has changed as a result and since then. So let's kick off with our news roundup. We've got three topics for you as usual. The first one is uh, Apple's uh, investment in original video content that was reported this week by, I think, the Wall Street Journal. Uh, secondly, we'll talk about the Nintendo Switch, the announcement of pricing and specs and so on that happened uh, last night. And then thirdly, Facebook's launch of what it calls the Facebook Journalism Project, an attempt to help news organizations in various ways to promote their product and make money through Facebook. So let's start out with Apple's investment in original content. This isn't obviously the first we've heard about this. They've uh, acquired a couple of pieces of content, and uh, we know that others have been in development. The interesting thing is the focus still does seem to be creating video content that's going to sit within Apple Music. At least that's the way it's been reported. Uh, what was your take on all this, Aaron? Uh, my the very first thought is my mind went to where it, my mind went to what kind of content they're, they're likely to produce. Hey, Apple. I mean, obviously they'll sell, you know, whatever movies in iTunes, they'll sell whatever, um, you know, music uh, and so forth on iTunes as well. But but in terms of what they produce, they've always been super cautious and being family friendly. Um, it just yeah. is a general tone of a company. as And that's reflected, I think, best in app store policies. And, uh, and I'm really curious about that. You know, most of the third party, most of the new players, new entrants to this content production space like Netflix and Amazon, uh, they've, they've, you know, they produce like kids show stuff, but then a lot of the, you know, uh, a, a lot of the stuff made for adult audiences is more mature in content. Right. And I'm curious yep. to see where Apple settles on that. Like, are they going to create stuff mm -hmm. that, you know, is maybe a little more violent, a little more, you know the kind of stuff that you're not going to want your eight-year-old to watch, or right. or what? It's hard to imagine. So I don't know. I mean, you know, is a Pixar sort of <laughs> mentality coming into this yeah. year? I don't know. I mean, it's it's curious to consider about exactly what kind of content Apple would produce. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a very interesting angle, and I hadn't really thought about that that side of it. My my main my mind went more to. The question of kind of is this really going to be part of Apple Music or are they using Apple Music as cover for developing stuff that's eventually going to go into an Apple video service? You know, trying out the process of commissioning and then 
making content uh, in the video space, something they obviously have very little experience of until now. And then, you know, does this end up being part of a push to create some exclusives around an Apple video service? You know, some of the content they've, they've either acquired or commissioned so far makes a lot of sense as an obvious fit with music. You know, there's a Dr. Dr. Dre thing that they have going on, which, to your point, seems like it could be quite adult in nature. Uh, there's the carpool karaoke that has an obvious music connection as well. Um, so that, that has that obvious connection. It's not clear that the TV and movie stuff that they're developing now is going to be as obvious a fit. Um, but it would be an obvious thing to do in the context of some kind of subscription video service, which I still think they, they've got to launch at some point this year. So that was kind of where my mind went with it. Yeah, I do wonder um, what the revenue model will be. It seems likely a subscription service makes sense, but they love driving hardware sales. And so, yeah, yeah. you know, it would be interesting if, for example, if you're owning Apple, Apple devices, if you get a discount versus somebody who's accessing it through a browser, or if you accessing mm. it through a browser will even be possible. That's right. going to be the yeah, weird I mean, part, if it's of part of If it's part of Apple Music, then it would theoretically be available on Android too. But, right. you know, they could say the Android app only has music. You know, if you want the video side, you need to get the iOS version or the Mac version or the Apple TV version or whatever. But that would be unprecedented, so, right? I mean, that would be, would you be, have yeah. to buy a physical device branded mm -hmm. by a particular company to have access to the content. That hasn't ever happened yeah. before. So Yeah, yeah. Except iTunes. I mean, you know, you paid for that separately before, but, you know, it's content channels have always, you know, Apple Music's the exception rather than the rule here, right? So yeah. all of its content channels have always been exclusive, but the content itself was also available through other stores. Right. So, yeah, but if so there's like a, you know, I mean, like right now, if you want to watch Game of Thrones, you have to subscribe mm -hmm. to HBO now, but you can do it on, right. on any device. Yeah. It'd be, it's really curious to try to imagine what Apple might do with that because they've always had this ethic of driving hardware sales first. Yes. It'll be interesting to see if they just abandon it this time around or they try something yeah. that if they do it, I guarantee it'll bug people. So Yeah, yeah. We'll see how that all pans out. Um, let's move on to Nintendo Switch. So this was actually announced a few weeks back. They had a, a pretty cool sort of promo video for it. Um, a bit too long, but other than that, it seems sort of relatively compelling. It's an interesting idea of a device that's both sort of a portable gaming device and then sort of docks when you get it home and becomes sort of a console. Um they announced the pricing and a few of the other specs and details, the first games that are going to be available. I guess there'll only be about five available the day of, and then others will show up later in March and then throughout the year. Um, I'm not a huge gamer myself, and, and I think you, you are more drawn to this space than I am. So can I, how do you see this device as it exists now that we know more of the details? The mobile hybrid, like the mobile you know, um, stationary hybrid is... I, I guess I don't see it as clearly. I remember when the Wii came out, everybody thought that was silly too, but there was a genius in it um, in the sense that it got you moving relative to your, uh, uh, relative to video games, which hadn't ever really been done well before. Um, this feels different in that they're going up against mobile as far as gaming goes. I mean, they're going up against iOS and Android handsets where most people do their portable gaming, you know, when you're waiting in line for something or sitting on the bus or, uh, you know, just, you know, you know, uh, trying to fall asleep at night. Right. I, I mean, and, and the switch is a weird device for those use cases. And so I, you have to be pretty dedicated and the ad, the, the promo video that Nintendo ran for this created this idea that, you're going to have like a whole network of friends that you're going to bring your, you're going to bring your switch over to your buddy's house and that kind of a thing. 
I can picture that happening with teenagers, and that's a big market. But at the same time, they're going up against mobile in this space, which feels strange. I can picture, I mean, there are always going to be those dedicated people who are really into the, the properties, right, the gaming properties, and they like mobile gaming. And there will be the, that very small group that prefer it for that. And they'll probably also hook it up to their TVs as well. But I wager that the vast majority of people who buy these things, they're going to use them 95% of the time plugged into their television. And right. uh, and so it, I, I would complain about the overhead cost of having to have a device that had this extra feature that I never used. But the pricing on it was actually not bad at all. I mean, $300 in the U.S. is, is, is decent. Um, for a brand new gaming console, especially that it's giving access to all these new games within some really popular properties like Mario and Zelda. And so um, I think it'll sell really well. I just don't think the mobile feature of it is going to be the breakout that Nintendo's portraying it to be. Yeah, there's some weird sort of spec stuff too. Like I think it's limited to 720p when it's mobile and the battery life could be anything from two to five hours, depending on which game you're playing. And, and there's some funny stuff like that around it. I, I do wonder, too, how much sort of nostalgia for old Nintendo gaming systems drive sales for this stuff. You know, I, right. I think of the other smaller device. I'm, I'm forgetting the name right now, this sort of uh, classic device that they re-released recently in a sort yeah. of smaller portable form factor. The one that nobody um, can find in Christmas time because it's sold out yes, by day one. exactly. I mean, that, that seemed entirely nostalgia-driven to me too, you know, and it, it sort of played up to that. There was like an 8-bit mode, I think. Um, but there, there's a lot of that that's driven this, and I think that's probably true to some extent for, for both their mobile games as well with Pokemon and, and the Super Mario Run game. Um, that's not a bad thing necessarily. It's great to tap into that. That's one of their strengths, you know, their IP and the sort of positive associations that a lot of people have with those, having played them in their youth and so on. Uh, the question is just kind of how uh, well does that translate into sales over the long term? You know, do you get an initial batch of people who buy them for that nostalgia reason and that's about it? Or does, does there start to be word of mouth? Does there start to be some kind of network effect from the fact that this is fun to play with friends and so on? You know, we'll kind of have to wait and see all of that. I think it's good to see Nintendo, you know, back in the console game with something that looks more compelling than the last thing they did. Um, You know, this looks like the most compelling piece of hardware from them in quite a few years. uh, So that's a good thing. Um, So, yeah, I I, I think it's good. As I say, I think they seem more open to experimenting with different things. I think some of the more recent stuff they've come out with has been good. Hasn't been perfect. There have been some flaws. I think Super Mario Run suffered from a somewhat flawed business model. Uh, and then they suffered for that, frankly. But, you know, it's good to see them experimenting and not, not seem quite so hidebound by ideas of what Nintendo is and could be in, in a space, you know, in today's gaming world where they seem very threatened. So that's, that's a good thing on balance. I, I mostly agree with that assessment. I would say the one area in which they're incredibly stubborn is, is not getting their older, their older properties onto mobile. I, there's no good reason for them to not have super mario brothers on android and ios i mean there's yeah, not and i think they, it'll come they could price it at five to ten dollars people would buy it like crazy and they'd make a lot of money essentially repurposing an yeah. old game it yeah. you know it, people have a lot of other options for playing those old games except in the mobile space and right. and the and the switch isn't going to be that it's way too that was the other right. comment i want to make just quickly it's way too big to be a convenient mobile device for the, the kind of gaming that a lot of people do. It's not pocketable yeah. is what it comes down to. And right. so, right. I yeah. don't know. We'll see. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, the third news roundup topic is uh, Facebook's announcement uh, a few days ago of what it calls the Facebook Journalism Project. And they hired Campbell Brown, who's sort of fairly high-profile figure within the news world as head of news partnerships, and then a few days later announced this Facebook journalism project. And it seems like several things, but really it's a way of saying, you know, Facebook is a friend to news organizations and wants to help them to thrive, ultimately. Um, you know, there was a lot of stuff in there that was sort of fairly generic, but there's quite a few value judgments, too, about, you know, the value of local news and wanting to foster that and, and make sure it, it thrives and survives and, uh, and so on. So it was kind of an interesting mix in terms of the announcement it also seems to be part of a recent shift in Facebook's thinking about its role in the world as regards media and news in particular. I think that it's very easy to paint this as just being about fake news, but I think it's a lot broader than that. I think Facebook recognizes that it's really fundamentally changing the business model of news in today's world and has something of responsibility to make sure that doesn't end up being a ne negative for news organizations, that as it becomes more of a filter and a sort of a front end and actually the place where people consume that news through things like instant articles where people never actually hit, say, the New York Times website, they need to find ways to foster new business models around that as well. So there's experimentation with subscription models and, and uh, little bundles of news articles and things like that as well. So... Um, I think on, on balance this positive thing that Facebook's starting to embrace this role that it has and starting to take it a bit more seriously and perhaps be a bit more responsible around it as well. Um, dealing with hoaxes and fake news is definitely part of this push, but it's really about a lot more than that. But I think, you know, I see this as a positive development that Facebook no longer quite has its head in the sand in the same way about its role and the importance of its role. Uh, and is starting to sort of try to figure out how it works through some of this stuff. I think the danger with all this is still that Facebook's perceived as taking sides in some way, promoting some news over other news, uh, some news organizations over other news organizations. And, you know, we, we already saw this when they announced their fake news solutions a few weeks back, that there's a backlash from people that feel like some of the publications being described as fake news, you know, are legitimate news sources and so on. So there's, it's definitely... Uh, dangerous ground as well as being, I think, on balance, a positive thing. Yeah, I mean, the truth is they're going up against sharing uh, with this, and 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 the and they kind of have to um, when they just leave it open. Sharing is way too easy to manipulate, is what it's coming down to, and and it, that's why fake news surfaces the way it does, is because it, the the manipulation isn't necessarily a technical one, but it's just. You, you, the way people respond to headlines, right, and the way it feeds into preconceived narratives and and the instinctive nature to kind of be right and and snark being powerful and all those things, they're they're kind of going up against that. I I, I think their best approach to it, and this kind of goes to the point you were making, is is definitely going to be a gradual one. Um, right now, Facebook, the way it's always populated your newsfeed is with either media properties pushing the content themselves, right? And so, you know, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, CNN, whoever is going to try to get you to like their Facebook page. So that way that stuff shows up in your feed and other people's feeds that are friends with you. Um, the idea that Facebook has a more active role in promoting this stuff is going to have to be done slowly because of what you said. Um, because uh, otherwise there's, there's, a, there's a revolt that will take place and and uh, rightly or not, it's the kind of thing that could happen. So, but but with a gradual push, it'll be sort of like <laughs> this is an ominous metaphor, but sort of like you know you 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 boil a frog by slowly increasing the temperature. <laughs> 
So um, not that that's the way Facebook should be thinking about its users. But, uh, you know, if they I think it's I think it's fine that a that a, a, that a social media company wants to portray media that it chooses to portray with some degree of preference. I, th I think it's their right as the owners of the property that they're offering to people. Um, but I also think it's right that they do it judiciously, thoughtfully, and gradually. So, which I think is what it is, looks like is going to happen. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I think I agree with all of that. Good stuff. Okay, well, let's wrap up the news roundup there and move on to our main topic today, which is talking about trends out of CES. And, and as I mentioned at the top, I was at CES in person. Uh, and I'm never quite sure whether it's easier or harder to discern trends at CES when you're there or when you're not there. <laughs> that's um, true in the there, news. That's true in your newsfeed too, though. Yeah, <laughs> like, I mean, you yeah, get this like true. the newsfeed version is the is the sitting in front of your computer version of CES. It's a deluge of of right. uh, press releases. Yeah. Well, the other challenge when you're actually there is that, and I, I, I've I've operated at CES in different ways over the years. Uh, last year, I decided, you know, I'm going to set up very few meetings. I'm going to spend, give myself a lot of time to walk the show floor and that kind of thing and really kind of take it in. And this year, I kind of swung back to the opposite end of the, the spectrum where I, you know, had basically all my time booked up, had exceeding little time to actually go look at the show floor. And, and that's the challenge when you're actually there is if you really try to use your time and fill it with interesting meetings, which I did and I had a great time and it was very useful, you have very little time to really take the temperature of the broader thing. And so your sense of what CES is about this year, in, in a sense, is very shaped by what you choose to make it about, um, you know, the meetings you choose to take and so on. And so a lot of my sense of the themes this year really came from the same sort of news feeds that you read, I think, rather than necessarily on the ground experience, although it was shaped by that a little bit as well. Um, there were a few sort of big themes that came out of it, though, and we'll, we'll walk through some of these over the next little while here and cover as many of them as it feels like we have time to. I think one, the big one was Alexa and Amazon, and we'll talk about that one in detail. Uh, cars was another one. The smart home and home automation is the third. Drones, very present, um, but some interesting news around drones too in the broader industry in the last week or so. Wearables felt like they had a much lower profile this time around. And then Chinese companies, so the Eco, Xiaomi, and then to some extent you know TCL Hire and a bunch of other uh, TV and other manufacturers as well. Uh, let's start out by talking about Alexa, though. It really felt like it stole the show, was kind of the star of the show this time around. So many announcements around uh, integrating Alexa into a whole variety of different devices from sort of Echo clones from the likes of Lenovo to the NVIDIA Shield, the next generation of that device, uh, and everything else you can imagine almost, including a couple of car manufacturer announcements as well. So what was your sense of that, Aaron, watching remotely? Uh, Amazon made it so easy, it was kind of inevitable. I mean, Amazon has done a really good job with Alexa, making it a platform that developers and and and, and product manufacturers could easily tie into. Um, you know, I think the I, I think the 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 Echo has been a prominent enough device and a useful enough device for people that everybody's trying to pick the next trend. That is the one theme year after year at CES is, is everybody's trying to be out in front of the pack on the next trend. And it doesn't actually surprise me all that much that, that people settled on Alexa simply because Amazon made it so easy for everybody to do that. And that's that's not true for any of the other players in this space right now. So 
so I, I think that's fantastic. The problem with this is that there's a lot of there's a lot of craft out there, a lot of garbage, a lot of you know silly stuff, um, and tying into Alexa, um, you know, is not going to have as deep an impact and for that many people yet, at least not from any of the stuff I saw coming out. Um, in the end, the problem is it's still tied to your home, which is a core yeah. issue here. Yeah. And one that got highlighted even this week um, in a couple of news items with Apple. I think it was Phil Schiller, right, that had commented that they don't see AI as, um, in, in these virtual assistants, as something that needs to be stuck in your kitchen. Right. Um, but I think you're also crazy to, if you think that Amazon doesn't already have plans to get Alexa into people's pockets and, and elsewhere. Right. So. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, as I said, I, it really felt like it was the, the big news story was how many different things it was integrated into. But having said that, um, I, I, you're absolutely right. The vast majority of these things look interesting, but if you think about what the actual sales potential of them is, the numbers are going to be extremely small. You know, like, okay, Lenovo has a version of the Echo that comes in a couple of different colors and a not slightly nicer speaker version that costs a bit more. Um, how many are they actually going to sell? Far fewer than Amazon will sell Echoes. You know, NVIDIA Shield, well, it's a nice device, but that hasn't sold very many so far, probably won't sell that many more in its next version either. Um, you know, even the Ford and Volkswagen integrations, you know, those are A, fairly nebulous. We don't know exactly when they're going to arrive and in which models. But B, uh, cars don't sell in huge numbers. You know, 17 million cars total sold per year in the US, you know. So and, and no, uh, you know, and of those... I was going to say, nobody's going to buy a car based on Alexa, Alexa integration. integration. Yeah, no, <laughs> so. absolutely, exactly. That's So, you know, it feels a bit to me like skills integration numbers, you know, like that number that keeps coming out from Amazon about how many skills there are, third-party skills integrated into Echo and Alexa. Like, great, there are 5,000 now. How many of those are from companies you've actually ever heard of? Um, and that's the challenge. A lot of this, these numbers, a lot of the sheer volume of announcements that was made masks the fact that even taken collectively, the vast majority of these devices won't sell anywhere near as many as Amazon will sell Echoes on their own. And to right. your point, the vast majority of them are also for the home. And the one exception really was the Huawei Mate 9 device that was talked about in very vague terms again. And uh, the big question there, to my mind, is, is not just will they sell any of them in the US because Huawei doesn't typically sell a lot of phones here, but the other one is how does Alexa actually perform in a phone? Uh, because, and this is one of my big theories about Echo and Alexa, is it seems so good because it's in a design purpose-built for this one use case. You know, it has all the power at once, can be as big as it wants to be effectively and have a mic array that's designed for nothing else except far field voice recognition. Uh, what happens if you squeeze the back end stuff without the hardware uh, into a phone in a very busy environment? You know, how does it perform then? And do we suddenly realize actually the difference between Alexa and Siri isn't Alexa's much better, but Alexa lives in a device that's purpose built for it and Siri lives in a smartphone or Apple Watch or something else that's built for portability and maximum battery life. Uh, that's the other big question I have still about Alexa at this point is when it does make it out of the home, will it be any good? I think this is a great point because AI is going to be, I mean, the AI that drives Alexa and Siri and, and, uh, and Google Assistant and all these others has to take as an input these, de these audio recordings. And right. there's so much that can vary 
uh, you know, any, I, I, have a, I have a friend here at BYU and we'll probably cover his stuff in a later episode of the, of the podcast this year. Uh, he specializes in computer vision, which is a segment of AI. And, you know, it's, it's really easy to, to make good AI when you have a very narrow band of conditions to consider. <laughs> and right. so it, it's in broadening that so it can contemplate more situations that it starts to get exponentially, literally exponentially harder. So, um, I don't know. I, 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 there is the outside possibility that Amazon has hired the, the especially talented engineers, uh, but it seems much more likely, right, that uh, Apple and Google has as talented engineers who are just confronting harder problems. Right. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that's worth bearing in mind and mentioning at least briefly is the fact that, you know, Alexa did very well. Google was almost nowhere. And NVIDIA Shield was one of only a couple of integrations that were announced. And this goes back to what we said when the Pixel launched in the fall, which is Google decided to prioritize its own devices. And it had this opportunity to very quickly catch up with Amazon as a sort of agnostic voice assistant and decided not to do that, deliberately kind of held it back from use by third parties uh, in order to promote its own hardware. And I think that's really come back to bite them in a big way. And I think CS was a huge illustration of that fact. And timing-wise, it may have been tough for, for Google to get many integrations announced by January anyway, having only launched in the fall. But it, it does feel like that was a big strategic mistake at this point. I agree. I, I think there would have been people holding off or people um, b being willing to being willing to be more patient and work with Google to try to get this stuff baked into their devices. I think you would have, I think if Google had hung out assistant as a resource, there would have been companies at CES saying, by the way, Google assistant support is coming out in May, right. Or in right. October even. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that, there would have been mm -hmm. a lot more of that kind of messaging. And I completely agree. I think this was a, I think this was a misstep primarily driven by the fact that it showed a lack of confidence in the value of the Pixel just coming right. from Google alone. I don't think there yeah. are that many people who are going to be buying Pixels based on the exclusive access to Google Assistant. I think it's. I think they're going to be buying the Pixel because it's a Google phone and they trust the brand. And I didn't see the marketing value of withholding that um, at all. In fact, and now if you bought a Pixel, it actually diminishes that because you would have had more integrations available to you if they had opened right. it up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, we mentioned cars briefly just now in the context of Alexa integration, but cars were a much bigger story in general at CES. Uh, lots of car press conferences. Uh, Fiat Chrysler actually held their big car press conference at CES last week rather than at the, the uh, Detroit Auto Show this week, which uh, alienated a lot of automotive reporters, frankly, from the reporting that I've seen. Uh, but, you know, it was, it's symbolic of the greater influence that CES has as cars move more and more into the tech domain and you know people use cliches like cars are no longer just cars they're computers on wheels and all that kind of stuff but uh you know we've talked about cars quite a bit over the last sort of year and a half here on the podcast and, and something that i'm diving a lot deeper into at the moment for a couple of projects that i'm working on but uh and i was at the auto show this week too uh, you know, cars are a big part of the tech industry. Lots of tech companies want to be in cars in one way or another, whether it's the chip makers, whether it's operating system vendors, whether it's smartphone vendors wanting good integration with cars, whether it's companies like Google making self-driving technology, 
whether it's AI companies wanting to power that autonomous driving technology, uh, you know, it has so many intersections now, uh, or whether it's Uber and Lyft and so on, just trying to uh, transform ownership models and so on. Uh, and so we did see several press conferences. My favorite by far was the, the Toyota one, where there was a 15-minute lecture, basically, on the complexities of autonomous driving, which is one of the <laughs> most condensed periods of learning about uh, autonomous driving that I've had in my research about this field over the last few months was fantastic. It was the, the head of the Toyota Research Institute, a guy called Gil Pratt, who gave that. He's a former professor, and it showed. He did a great job of talking through a lot of the research and stuff around why this is just so hard, not just technically, but philosophically and for other reasons as well. So really interesting, and I think there's a version of that that you can watch online, well worth a watch. But uh, Lots of announcements, as I say, and lots of them very sort of high-level, very exciting-sounding announcements about autonomous driving, and most of which, I'd say pretty much all of which actually should have come with one, if not several, asterisks uh, next to them uh, with a little footnote saying, uh, this doesn't quite mean what it sounds like it means in terms of how widespread some of this stuff is going to be and how quickly it's actually going to show up in the market. I, I think this. I think your comment and what we saw at CES and what just got announced, and you know what you see regularly announced at the auto shows, like the Detroit show this week. This is going to be an interesting cultural thing happening because car manufacturers have always been very willing to clue in to where they're headed years in advance. I mean, the idea of a concept car doesn't exist yeah. in the tech world, right? I mean, the the closest you ever come to those in the consumer tech world is a concept video. Where you know Microsoft did one of these four or five years ago, where they sort of gave their vision of what they where they thought the world was headed technology-wise, um, but you don't get you don't get concept products um, where they actually roll it out onto a show floor and say, "Hey, you can't buy this thing, but look where we're headed." Yet that is very deeply embedded into the into the car auto manufacturer culture, and I'm curious to see how that how that goes into the future. Right, I'm curious to see how well. Because you really are, there really are two cultures blending here with the two industries mm -hmm. blending the way CES illustrated. And uh, I don't think there's going to be nearly as high of a tolerance for the concept car model in the yeah. consumer tech space. I, I just think, yeah. you know, because there's always, there's very much a, a there's, there's very much a, there's, there's a vaporware, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Aversion, that's the word. Yes. Like they, yeah. There's such a high aversion to vaporware um, in the consumer tech space that culturally speaking, it's going to be a challenge for auto manufacturers if they don't appreciate like this idea that a concept car as a promise about what's coming five years in the future. People look at concept cars and know that's, you know, 90% of that stuff never shows up because styles right. change or, or technologies don't pan out or market demands shift. Um, yeah. And the consumer tech sector is not going to tolerate that the same way. Yeah, no, I agreed. And it was, this is the interesting thing. I mean, I mentioned this Fiat Chrysler press conference. It was at CES somewhat controversially rather than at the auto show. And it was, it was one of the worst bits of fluff I've ever seen, frankly. It was uh, an announcement of a concept car called the Portal that was kind of designed by millennials, intended for millennials, <laughs> presented yeah. entirely by millennials. Uh, and it was, as I say, the worst bit of fluff. You know, it was just lots of airy fairy stuff. You, you know, none of it very concrete at all. You can't hear my eyes rolling as you go through all that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was, yeah, it, it it was so far removed from reality that it was just kind of ridiculous. You know, it was is this sort of vision of the future, but sort of absolutely not grounded in any kind of current reality. And and 
you know, and this is from a company that's just released the the new Chrysler Pacifica, which is actually really quite a compelling new generation of minivan, you know, and it's the one that uh, Waymo Alphabet's self-driving unit is using for testing self-driving cars, you know, so got plenty to be proud about, you know, in this space already, but it just, yeah, it was kind of a funny thing and kind of... I came away with a lot of respect for the car industry from this week, but there are things like that that still just, like, to your point, make you roll your eyes. They feel like runway fashion. It's like, okay, but why is this person wearing a crocodile on their head? You know, nobody's actually going to be wearing that on the street ever, let alone in the next couple of years, you know. So, yeah, some of it just seems ridiculous. And and some of the claims that are designed to grab headlines absolutely don't mean what they seem to mean, especially when it comes to things like autonomous driving. That's still a very long way away, and that's something that we're – We'll almost certainly talk about in the next few weeks in a question of the week at some point. And, and I think um, we've already seen consumer tech press being very skeptical and dismissive of that style. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's just going to stay that way. I don't think that's going to change. Yeah. I think car, yeah. I think car manufacturers are going to have to come to the tech press with more stuff to show. Yes. Rather than these future vision kind of things. Yeah, absolutely agreed. Yeah. Well, let's talk about smart home and home automation. Um, it's been a big theme at CES for several years now. They've got a big area devoted to it on one of the several show floors. Um, and yet a lot of it has been just little piece solutions. Little, you know, I, I'm an outlet company. Here's my outlet. I'm a bulb company. Here's my smart bulb, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, lots of that kind of stuff. And so some of the most interesting stuff has been um, technology and even services that start to provide some integration between this stuff. And we've we've talked about the services model and why I personally think that's actually the more promising model for home automation. And, and there was a really good example of that at CES was Vivint, which has been at CES in a big way the last two years, happens to be a local company here in Utah as well. Uh, their smart home, uh, the Vivint smart home as opposed to Vivint Solar, um, they made an announcement at the show of their Sky Assistant, and this is what they call the first real smart home assistant. And this kind of goes to a point that I've made about Alexa before, which is, you know, people talk about Echo as being a smart home assistant, but it's actually a dumb home assistant, not in a pejorative sense, but in the sense that it doesn't actually use any intelligence at all. It just listens to your your command and passes it on to Nest or Hue or, or whichever system you're talking to without any kind of added intelligence. It's just a pass-through. Uh, and what you really want in a smart home assistant is one that understands what's going on in the home, takes some proactive actions, perhaps suggests other actions and asks you to confirm them, You know, is aware of what's going on in the home and doesn't just act on a command but actually acts in a smart way on a command perhaps if you tell it you're leaving the house don't lock the doors before i walk out the door you know wait a couple of minutes perhaps turn off the lights first and then close the door and then when you're sure i've really left then you set the alarm for example and so that's the vision that vivint was kind of pushing and i I had a conversation with them at ces which was very interesting on that point it's very much kind of aligned with my own vision for this stuff but you were saying aaron that you saw some stuff that looked interesting too that was quite different from that yeah, it's all kind of embodied in what Levitron announced. They have some new built-in switches that uh, don't need a hub, um, still work with HomeKit. Um, and uh, <clears throat> and I think what, what, what I saw that was exciting there, because there's actually been a pretty massive gap in that space. There have been one or two built-in switches uh, for home automation, but most of the stuff is, is what you plug in or screw into a light bulb socket. And, and this is the reality of the future of home automation is it's not in the stuff you screw in. It's not in the stuff you plug in. It's in the stuff you build in, the stuff you wire in. 
That's right. the future of home automation. All these companies that are building, you know, the stuff you plug into the wall that's that's making a device smart, those are all stopgaps. Those are all like filling a space. And I mean, it's not like that market's going to disappear next year or the year after. It's going to last a little while. But in the long run, the home automation, where it's really going to get embedded into people's homes and in their lives, is in new house builds and in renovations. Or it's calling an electrician to come in and switch out all the all the switches in your house, right? Um, that's it's getting wiring to the right spot, so your camera doesn't have to come with a really unsightly plug. Um, you know that you have to drape around your door frame. Uh, like like it's that kind of stuff that's the future of home automation. And so all the stuff we saw, the majority of the stuff I should say we saw at CES last year, a lot of the stuff we saw at CES this year is all just filling the space temporarily, but it's not what people are going to be having in their smart homes 20 or 30 years from now. All that stuff is going to be built in or wired in. The, yeah. um, you know, but And there were more signs of that, like the stuff you build in or wire in, like what Vivint was doing. I actually have a friend who won the Custom Home of the Year Award at, uh, at CES this year. And uh, it was based on all the stuff that his company builds into people's homes, not in right. not the stuff okay. that they just plug into a, to an outlet. Yeah, yeah. No, and that that means it's going to be a very long term proposition too, because obviously most people don't rewire their whole That's house right. every year. You know, a lot of it's going to be new builds and you know major renovations and so on, where this stuff comes into play. And I think that's the arc of the smart home in the end. Right. I right. I, I think all these people expecting it to be automatically big and huge, like like smartphones were. Right. Um, are misreading it because you've got uh, you've got a lot more infrastructure problems that that have to shift and move in a much slower time frame, and so I, I, I do think the smart home, I think five years from now you're going to see a lot more of it, um, but not anything. But that's five years if you look at you know the right. iPhone, which we'll talk about in a minute. It took over the world in ten, right? Right. The smart yeah. home's not going to be like that. Yeah, good point. Um, let's talk about drones briefly. So drones have been big as well at CES for the last several years. Big companies, small companies, lots of little Chinese companies never heard of. They've been kind of everywhere. And so it was a big theme again, but also in the past week or so, we've seen a couple of big announcements from drone firms. Parrot uh, laid off, I think, uh, I can't remember what the number was, uh, certainly a big chunk of their workforce. And then Lily, another sort of consumer drone that never really got off the ground is basically fizzling as well. So you know, even though there's a lot of attention paid to drones at CES, two of the two of the more recent entrants, and in the case of Parrot, quite a big one, uh, seem to really be struggling. And, and Parrot seems to be refocusing away from the consumer market towards some more business and industrial applications, which seems very sensible for them in the face of DJI as a very strong force in sort of consumer space. Um, but, you know, drones is one of those areas and highlights, you know, a lot of the interesting trends around hardware at the moment of various kinds. Uh, on the one hand, it's easier to get into these spaces than it ever has been before and to build something, um, often using Chinese components uh, and often enabled by, you know, smartphone proliferation over the last few years. Uh, on the other hand, being successful at it over the long term, really building a brand and differentiation and being able to make money at it and a sustainable business at it, that's the hard part. And I think we're really seeing that play out with drones right now. Oh, absolutely. I, I think drones are a lot. Uh, drones right now are going through what 3D printers went through a year or two ago. Uh, you know, when 3D printers started taking off, there was this huge excitement and everybody was imagining having a 3D printer in their house. And it, that's clearly not the case now because the consumer... The consumer case for a 3D printer is not um, all that 
all that broadly compelling. And I think drones are the same. I mean, there are a lot of hobbyists who are really going to enjoy, you know, having their drones. And they're the little cheapo kind that you can buy for their kids, buy for your kids to play with. But I don't think in the consumer space it's going to be all that huge. It's it's fundamentally a toy in the consumer space. Um, but in the commercial and industrial space, there are all sorts of applications for drones that make a ton of sense. Just like that's just like that's true for 3D printers. And so I, I think that's that that's where drones are headed. And so I'm not surprised. In fact, if you want to read about how hard consumer, you know, how hard it can be to have a consumer product like drones, there's a great post uh, by uh, Jason Cocky on his blog, cocky.org, um, that he posted yesterday. He, he called it my holiday shopping adventures and Amazon's continued retail dominance. So it's a good perspective on Amazon and its retail space, but it's also a pretty good commentary on drones as a consumer product. And uh, like it's this toy that he's buying for his son that his son really loves and is excited about. But Parrot completely dropped the ball on fulfilling it. Um, huh. And uh, and it's sort of his saga of trying to get one of these for his son before Christmas. Um, you know, that's not where there's a lot of money to be made, I think, in the long run with this. I, I think it's going to be in industrial applications. And so you're going to see a consolidation in this market among companies. And, and in the end, the ones that are doing this and surviving and doing really well are the ones who are selling the drones to companies, not to consumers. Right. Interesting. Um, talk about wearables briefly. Uh, they, again, have been a major theme at CES for the last several years, but quite quiet this year, actually. Not a lot of big announcements. And then, again, away from the CES over the last couple of weeks, but some big announcements. So Fitbit acquired, uh, I think it's a Vector um, smartwatch, uh, sort of premium smartwatch. Um, it's been out there for a while now. It's going to basically, as with Pebble, kind of shut down the product, but perhaps use some of the IP and technology and some of the engineers and so on to build some future Fitbit products. And then it emerged that Fitbit had made a bid for Jawbone uh, in the last few months. And then, you know, subsequently Fitbit, had, had, you know, Jawbone had turned them down. They felt the offer was too low and they wanted to go it alone. Uh, Fitbit had subsequently dropped its lawsuit against Jawbone on the basis that it felt like Jawbone was basically circling the drain and it wasn't worth it anymore. Um, and then it seems that Jawbone is kind of focusing now on sort of FDA-approved healthcare devices rather than necessarily consumer wearables. So lots of interesting sort of news in the, in the wearable space, suggesting certainly a certain amount of consolidation and, again, reflecting some of those same challenges around how hard it is to, to build a sustainable hardware business with Fitbit being one of the few sort of exceptions that's actually been able to make it work to some extent. Yeah, I, I think it's clear now that wearables are primarily a health-oriented device. And there's only, and, and this harkens back to the episode we did back in August about the limits of sensors in wearables, especially with wrist-worn wearables. I, I think Jawbone's idea of going into more FDA-approved devices is actually really smart. Um, and, uh, and in the end, that's kind of what wearables are. The, and in previous CESs, there was all sorts of froth when it came to wearables and it's all been blown off now yeah yeah agreed um, one last topic then for ces chinese companies and, and two in particular xiaomi had a big press conference which a lot of people took as a sign that it was finally going to launch properly into the us and start selling lots of its products here um, i attended the press conference on the basis that, that might be the case and uh, they announced a couple of things, but none of them were for sale in the U.S., basically. So, you know, big disappointment there for anybody hoping that Xiaomi was finally going to come to the U.S. 
it's a bit baffling at this point. They have some really interesting ideas about TVs, this sort of modular approach where the, the screen and the soundbar are separate uh, and you can upgrade the soundbar, which basically has all the brains of the TV in it uh, separately from the screen. Uh, and this addresses the fact that something like 20% of the cost of a TV is the, the brains and the soundbar and then 80% is the screen. And the screen, you don't really need to upgrade that often. If it's a 4K TV today, It'll be fine five years from now too, but you might want to update the brains or the sound as that gets new capabilities over the next few years. So lots of clever stuff, you know, might well sell very well here in the US. And yet for whatever reason, they're still resisting uh, the move into the US. Uh, and in contrast to the Eco, which has been having all kinds of financial troubles, but uh, did a big launch a couple of months ago, was at CES with their uh, bikes, like bicycles. They have two bicycles, for example. They have a bunch of TVs and other stuff and um, a concept car as well uh, to our discussion about concept cars earlier. Um, you know, And then there's obviously TCL Hire, a whole variety of other much more established uh, TV and other consumer electronics companies from China too. But uh, And then there's the whole Shenzhen ecosystem and massive halls of tiny little Chinese components companies that you see at CES too. Yeah, I think what's interesting to me about this is that, you know, historically speaking, Asian consumer tech manufacturers have been able to come in and be very competitive in the U.S., um, primarily because they could produce at lower costs than American brands. Um, but th there's sort of this idea that they can always come and compete and do well. And that, that story's not playing out the same way it used to. And I don't know if it's just because the consumer tech um, that, that people are buying is harder to do than it used to be. Uh, it's certainly true if you look at smartphones compared to, say, television sets or VCRs. Um, but, uh, but for whatever reason, it seems like they're having a harder time finding traction compared to how they used to. Yeah, and I don't know if it's that they're competing against other Asian companies now. You know, the dominant players in TVs are almost all already Asian companies, right? So Samsung, LG, a variety of others. Um, you know, some of the Chinese ones that I mentioned are at the lower end, certainly. Uh, so it's perhaps they, they don't have the same advantages as they once did because they're competing against other companies with similar economics. But moving into the new products has not been as easy as people thought either. I, I mean, really, no. you, mm. you, you've got Samsung and Apple, right? I mean, yep. dominating smartphones yep. and Google is now mm -hmm. competing well with the Pixel. But, but I mean, the question is, why, you know, why haven't they shown up and produced you know, Android handsets that most people right. are buying, just like they were making VCRs that most people were buying and. Yeah. I think it's. I think it just has to do mostly with that the tech is a lot harder than it used to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, well, let's wrap up the CES discussion there and move on to our final topic for today, which is the 10th anniversary of the original announcement of the iPhone. It was That happened in June of 2007 with the phone actually going on sale in the summer later that year. And so we'll see a second round of 10th anniversary stuff, no doubt, in June this year. <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, for, for now, we'll focus on the launch announcement uh, whole variety of stuff to talk about here, but we'll keep this fairly brief. Um, Aaron, as we were sort of talking before we started recording, you were talking about rewatching the keynote, and I think that's something that you did this week. Do you yeah. want to talk about that a little bit? I think it should be required watching for people involved in the tech sector, whether you're working in it or writing about it or analyzing it or whatever. Uh, going back and watching that keynote again, and I, I was able to watch it live when it happened, not there, but you know, a broadcast of it, and... And it really stands out to me. Um, there are really important lessons to learn. I mean, you know, in, in business school, we teach a lot of stuff based on business cases. So you present a situation and a problem and, 
and then you have the students work through the case and then and then talk about their their strategic decisions or whatever the case relates to this is a fascinating business case because if you look at the way the iPhone was perceived at launch, there are all these things today that seem really obvious that at the time were not at all obvious. Um, there are a lot of things today that are taken for granted that back then were truly novel and amazing. Um, and, uh, and I don't know if anybody's done it yet, but if a business professor hasn't written up a case on this from a, either a marketing perspective or a, um, it, well, I guess marketing would be the main way to process. Somebody needs to, because there's so many things about that iPhone announcement that, that draw out all of this. I, I mean, for example, I, I remember during rewatching the keynote when Steve Jobs was going through some of the specs of the iPhone and he briefly mentioned a two megapixel camera. Uh, people seemed pretty happy with that at the time. And uh, the reality was it wasn't the best smartphone camera out there by any means, but it was good enough. And there's a lesson in that. There are a lot of ways where the early iPhone was good enough. And that was what was that was what was important. It didn't have to be the best in everything. It had to be the best in some very important things. And in this case, it was obviously user interaction that made the original iPhone stand out. But in other things, in the in the in the tech specs, for example, it didn't have to be the best. It just had to be good enough for most people. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I. I uh, was interesting. I. I. I think I was at some kind of BlackBerry analyst event in January of two thousand seven, um, and I remember, you know, there was the news coverage about the iPhone announcement, and I, I think I managed to find some kind of video to watch that sort of summarized the announcements and. I remember thinking, this is this looks really cool. I want one of these. And going to the evening event with other analysts who covered the space and and uh, saying, you know, I'm going to, at the end of the evening after the dinner or whatever, saying, oh, I'm going to go back to my hotel room and dream of iPhones, you know, or something like that. <laughs> and uh, I remember getting this sort of quizzical expression from, you know, one of the other analysts, like, what are you talking about? Like, this doesn't seem at all compelling. And, right. and uh, you know, I think that's kind of been how the iPhone's been ever since. You know, there are some people that, that think this is, you know, a great device you know that certainly at the time it was utterly different from what had come before it and there have been people throughout who've kind of rolled their eyes and and sort of said you know why you know why do you find this so compelling it doesn't doesn't speak to me at all um you know and and certainly the original announcement was very easy to dismiss you know it's going to be very expensive it was um and we missing all kinds of things that that were absolutely standard on smartphones, not like least keyboard. the keyboard. Yeah. Um, but you know, it didn't have copy copy paste. It didn't have three G. It didn't have you know you couldn't install any additional apps on it. Uh, you uh, were limited in all kinds of other ways. Um, you know, the camera to your point wasn't very good. You didn't have video recording. You didn't have any kind of multitasking. You know, there were lots of things that were missing, not just in the first year, but many of those things carried on for several years. Uh, and yet, you know, it absolutely took off because it, it completely changed the conception of what a smartphone was. And and it's interesting to think, too, about the sort of threefold description of it by Steve Jobs at the event, you know, about a widescreen iPod and a communication device. And um, I'm blanking on the third one all of a sudden. Uh, uh, so an internet, yeah. internet. Uh, I can't remember exactly what the, the descriptor is here. But uh, no, it, was a, anyway. it was an iPod, a cell phone and an internet communicator. 
there you go, internet communicator. And it's really the third of those that's been the main thing since then. You know, widescreen iPod, sure, okay, I can, you know, do stuff I used to do with my iPod on my iPhone, but it's certainly not what I spend most of my time doing. And yes, I do talk on it, but that's also not what I spend most of my time doing. It's really the fact that it's connected to the internet and gives me access to all the world's information through a browser and through a whole variety of apps. You know, that really is the key value proposition and what made it such a mainstream device in contrast to every other smartphone that had come before. This is a this, um, is, know, this is a really important comment because that was of the three, when Steve Jobs in that big moment said, are you getting it? They're all the same. When he right. got to the Internet Communicator for the first time, I mean, when he right. said that we're doing a touchscreen iPod, everybody freaked out. When he said we're, mm-hmm. we're doing a, a, a new cell phone, everybody freaked out. And then the third one, everyone was like, uh okay like nobody knew what that meant yeah right right and and it's funny because that really was the most important one and steve jobs knew it it was a little tone deaf of them i think if if i were there and i knew the trajectory of the iphone and right if i travel back in time i would tell steve jobs to reposition that third element as a handheld computer right I, i think that would have had a lot more meaning and significance yeah and the fact that his internet connected would have been part of the story for that day. Cause it, when it right, comes down to right. it, that's what smartphones are today or handheld computers. Yeah. Um, but it's hilarious because you know, your point is exactly right. That was easily the most important of the three elements. And yet it was the one that was the least understood at the time that he was announcing it. Right. So I wanted to spend some time talking about the ways in which the iPhones change the world. And I did write a piece about this for Tech Opinions Insiders a few days ago, but, uh, you know, it's 10 years on from at least the announcement. Um, and I feel like the world is in many ways a fundamentally different place now, thanks to the iPhone. And and that's interesting because the iPhone has minority market share. You know, Android has much bigger market share in the smartphone market. There's minority, you know, iOS has minority market share in the iPad too. And yet... You know, I feel like so many of the things about technology today can be traced back to the impact the iPhone had, uh, and obviously changed Apple's fortunes completely. Um, you know, dramatically increased the size of Apple's business, uh, arguably upended the carrier, the wireless carrier business. Um, it uh, changed what smartphones were. Those are just the obvious ones, and then there's just so many more far-reaching things as well because basically every other smartphone that came afterwards basically copied the approach the iPhone took yeah. uh, you got touch screens that have made their way then into tablets and, and now into Windows PCs although ironically not into Macs uh, you've got all the smartphone components that have then enabled all the things we talked about earlier you know the advances in cars they enabled you really enabled the creation of things like Alexa and Echo uh, smart home gear drones wearables you know all that stuff all uses components that originally developed for smartphones so, yeah, it's very, very broad impact, especially if you look at the sort of second-order effects. Absolutely. And I think one other element that fits in this category is, is smartphone apps. Absolutely. I mean, the idea that there's an app for that. Everything, everything is better if it has an app for it, right? And that's true for physical products, not just for, you know, general needs that people have. And, uh, and the idea that there's an app for everything now is a completely yeah. different world. And it's funny because the the you know the world was headed very much toward democratization on the web. Everything was going to be driven mm-hmm. through a web browser, and and even Google sort of setting its sights on this saw this as the future operating system. Right, the web was the operating system of the future, and the web is no longer the, that. Right, and the apps are the 
apps are the system of the future and 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 this will be for a long time there's not a clear replacement for that um people prefer apps to internet-based things and what's so interesting to me about that is that this was not only not part of the original iphone but it was something apple had considered and then dismissed they revisited it they and they changed their mind but i mean the critical nature of apps and how much they've changed the world was not even part of the first vision Mm -hmm. yeah yeah no, absolutely. I mean, in the piece I wrote, apps were a huge, con- uh, huge element that I talked about. And uh, you know, if you think about Uber, think about uh, right. Facebook, think about Tinder, think about um, you know any other number of companies that either wouldn't exist at all or would be a fraction of what they are today if it weren't for you know iPhone-like smartphones and the apps that they run. You know, whole businesses and thousands and millions even of people that are employed in these businesses that wouldn't exist without this model. Um, you know, so again, in, in terms of the second and third order effects of the launch of the iPhone, they're absolutely massive. Uh, you know, and, and it's impossible to imagine what the world would have been like. Maybe somebody else would have figured some of this stuff out within a couple of years afterwards if Apple hadn't done it, and we'd be on basically the same trajectory today. But uh, you know, we are where we are today across consumer technology because of the iPhone and all the innovation that it spurred. You know, not just at Apple. Um, but at you know every other big consumer technology company in response to and in competition with it, and that's the great thing about this industry is, you know, a bit of innovation here spurs innovation elsewhere, spurs competition, and you know that in turn drives the original company to continue to innovate and so on, and we all benefit from that. Yeah, that's right. If, you know, the app thing makes me realize that it would have been a mistake to tell Steve Jobs to call it a, a handheld computer instead of an internet communicator because. A handheld computer implies being able to st- install software, and right. uh, that wasn't yeah. an option back then. Yeah, although interestingly, they made a big deal in the original event, and not really ever since then, about the fact that it was built on OS ten. Right. Yeah, that was um, another you know, curious so they, they thing. They kind of did out. make that computer argument, but you know that in some ways it's not relevant at all. It couldn't run any of the same apps natively right. as a Mac could or anything like that. It was a funny thing to point out, and yet I guess the point they were making was this isn't something fundamentally different from a computer. It is basically a computer, but optimized for this form factor. Yeah, and so Steve Jobs doubled down on that um, on that message of it being based on OS X. He, you know, when he did the All Things D conference right after the iPhone was announced, uh, he was interviewed by Walt Mossberg, and, and Mossberg pushed him on that claim that it was that it was based on OS X and a real operating system, and Steve Jobs right. was unabashed about it. He said, no, absolutely, yeah. this is OS X. Like, I mean, he, yeah. he, he said, this is OS X on here, and... Uh, and he, you know, looking back, we can say with confidence, no, it wasn't. I mean, it was based on core technologies, <laughs> but it wasn't because you couldn't right. install software right. and there were all these other yeah, things yeah. you couldn't do. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, he was. I, I think that shows you kind of the core psychology behind it, though, right? Was that Apple did see it as a handheld computer. The yes. app thing was uh-huh. something that they weren't quite like ready to go. Decide, with, yeah. yeah, ready to go with or decided upon. I mean, there were they. They really hadn't decided yet at this point, based on yeah. all the stories that have come out since. But, but yeah, that's really interesting that to uh, yeah. to remember that that's how it was back then. Right, right. Great. Well, I think that's all we've got time for today. But thank you guys for being with us. Uh, we appreciate it. And as I say, happy new year. And we look forward to being back with you on a more regular schedule going forward. We have no plans to take a break again anytime soon. So. Uh, We look forward to getting back into our usual routine in terms of the format of the podcast as well over the coming weeks. Uh, As ever, if you have any feedback or requests for questions of the week for us to cover or anything like that, let us know on Twitter, on the website, and uh, we'll hopefully be with you again next week.
Thanks.